0: to West Virginia Week, a regular podcast from West Virginia Public Broadcasting that looks back at the major stories of the week. We'll hear about teacher shortages, splitting up the Department of Health and Human Resources, along with opening up a long overdue section of the King Coal Highway. We'll also bring you more in-depth stories on fish in Central Appalachia and a look at the woman behind the Canal School Book controversy. I'm your host this week, Eric Douglas. Let's jump right in with a few short news stories a program aimed at tackling the state's teacher shortage is growing. Chris Schultz has more. Now in its second year, the West Virginia Grow Your Own
1: program aims to start students interested in becoming teachers on the path to certification in high school. It is one piece of the state's attempts to address a shortage of more than 1,700 certified teachers. Jeff Hunter is a coordinator of educator preparation for the West Virginia Department of Education. He told the legislators of the Joint Standing Committee on Education Sunday evening, the 33 participating counties are now averaging 11 students in Grow Your Own.
0: We need to have somewhere between 10 and 19 students per grade level participating if we're going to attack that teacher deficit that we are facing now.
1: Hunter says the total number of students participating is up to 345 students from 235 last year.
0: For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. The state's PEIA director says the agency is making strides in controlling prescription costs and advancing wellness programs. Randy Yowie has the story. Public Employees Insurance Agency Director Brian Cunningham says he's working on several fronts to reduce the latest round of premium increases that were approved last week. Speaking to the Interim Joint Standing Committee on Insurance and PEIA, Cunningham said the agency is seeking some initial prescription cost-reducing opportunities around diabetes, weight management, and migraine medications. He said PEIA is leveraging a program that allows federally qualified health centers to buy medications at up to a 70 percent savings. Cunningham said the agency is consolidating a number of wellness programs.
1: We're targeting diabetes, weight management, and behavioral health.
0: Cunningham said a number of expanding PEIA online wellness programs also target weight loss and controlling diabetes. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie in Charleston. The president of West Virginia American Water cast doubt Monday on whether his company was responsible for a gas outage in Charleston last month. Curtis Tate has more.
1: Rob Burton, the president of West Virginia American Water, told the state legislature on Monday that it's not certain a broken water main caused hundreds of residents on Charleston's west side to lose gas service. Burton, testifying to the Joint Standing Committee on Technology and Infrastructure, said the eight-inch iron pipe was installed in 1989 and could be expected to last 80 to 100 years. He said no problems with the pipe had been detected.
2: The eight-inch ductile iron main was in good condition with no history of leaks, repairs, or customer issues dating back through our readily available records since 2009.
1: From the beginning of the outage on November 10th, Governor Jim Justice has blamed West Virginia American Water for causing it. Mountaineer Gas has sued the water company, and the State Public Service Commission is investigating. Burton pushed back in his testimony Monday.
2: Does the gas line have a leak history? is it also, it is also unknown as to which underground utility broke first.
1: Burton said Mountaineer Gas has not provided details about the age and condition of its pipe.
2: Until there is a full investigation, prematurely declaring what caused this incident will not be helpful to prevent such an event in the future.
1: Burton also said Mountaineer Gas has not explained why it couldn't isolate more of its gas lines as water spread through them. Water ultimately got into 46 miles of gas lines and many customers' household service lines. West Virginia American Water is offering a reimbursement to affected residents of as much as $2,000, provided they sign a waiver. The PSC has said its investigation could take 180 to 250 days to complete. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston.
0: As the deadlines to split, the state agency looms. Lawmakers discussed the possibility of overlap in West Virginia's newly reorganized DHHR. Emily Rice has the story.
3: The Office of Shared Administration will operate the newly separated West Virginia Department of Health and Human Resources starting January 1st. The DHHR was split into three departments, the Department of Human Services, the Department of Health, and the Department of Health Facilities. These three departments share six offices, Finance, Human Resources Management, Constituent Services, Communications, Operations, and Management Information Services. have questioned the incoming secretaries about the possibility of duplication of duties throughout the Office of Shared Administration and each of the three departments. Secretary Sherry Young presented a bird's-eye view of the organization during a meeting of the Legislative Oversight Committee on Health and Human Resources Accountability on Monday. She said she anticipated a question-and-answer session between lawmakers and the heads of each of the six offices and hoped it would quell lawmakers' fears about overlap.
4: They're there to tell the story about
3: what they do on a daily basis, because it is truly immense the, the people that they serve and, and the programs that, that they cover. Delegate Amy Summers, a Republican from Taylor County, asked Young if this new system was more efficient than past models.
4: So is it any differently, different from what we currently do or is it exactly the same?
3: It's very similar. And, and so um, when you look at the reporting structure, the, there could be some um, problems with having to go into the three departments. People have adjusted very well. Young said she looked forward to letting the heads of the six offices explain their vital roles to lawmakers on Friday. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston.
0: Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. Green Power delivered its first four school buses to West Virginia school districts on Wednesday. Curtis Tate went to the South Charleston plant and took a ride on one of them. Fraser Atkinson, CEO of Green Power,
1: notes that the school bus we're boarding got 170 miles out of a single charge, exceeding its advertised range of 140 miles. Green Power will begin building more of these buses, called the Beast, in South Charleston in January. On Wednesday, the company delivered smaller NanoBeast buses to Kanawha, Clay, Cabell, and Monongalia counties. The first thing you notice about the nano beast is how quiet it is. No roaring diesel engine, transmission, or exhaust. Instead, the fuel comes from a lithium iron phosphate battery, the same kind now used in Teslas. The biggest power consumption other than running the bus? The heater. The drive motor is number one, of course, and the heaters are number twos. The AC draws very little in the summer. What about those mountains in West Virginia? Atkinson explains that with the right kind of driver training, the downhill portion of the trip can actually put power back into the battery. You use the brakes a whole lot less than a traditional vehicle, and with really good drivers it can be literally a third of the usage of brakes compared to the equivalent. Right now, the battery is a big ticket item. A battery pack for the bus can cost $20,000 and last for about ten years. Atkinson says the cost will come down. So if that trend continues, you know, in five years the batteries will call, cost a whole lot less, and ten years they will be a fraction of what they are now. The charging infrastructure has a way to go. Kanawha County took delivery of its first bus Wednesday, but it doesn't have a charger yet. Statewide, it could be some time before an electric school bus can make a field trip from, say, Wheeling to Charleston on one charge. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in South Charleston.
0: Jim Justice held a ribbon-cutting ceremony Wednesday for the opening of a three-mile stretch of the King Cole Highway. Brianna Haney has the story.
5: The Christine Elmore West Bridge near Bluefield was commonly called the Bridge to Nowhere because the road ended with the bridge. The newly completed stretch of highway now connects the bridge and Airport Road to John Nash Boulevard near Bluefield. Governor Jim Justice says once completed, the highway will shave off hours of transit time for motorists and present an economic boost for the region.
0: This absolutely is your bridge to so much economic development and prosperity when I hate to say it, but in many, many, many ways, we ran off and left southern West Virginia. Well, that's not going to happen on my watch.
5: Noah Staker lives in Princeton and worked on the crew that built the connecting stretch of the King Cole Highway. Staker says the investment in this roadway will help tie southern West Virginia communities together and connect communities with safer, straighter roads.
6: West Virginia is just a tough state to drive through naturally, so the more straight line you can get it and it just allows people to get somewhere in 30 minutes versus an hour, and I feel like that's a big deal, gets people out and moving and traveling.
5: The economic impact of the construction was $7.5 million in paychecks to West Virginians, $23 million to contractors, and $4 million in induced revenue to local businesses. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Charleston.
0: You're listening to West Virginia Week, and now some of our top feature stories from this past week. They say there's a lot of fish in the sea, but there's also an awful lot of fish in the streams and rivers of Appalachia. A new book by fisheries research scientist and WVU professor Stuart Welsh showcases some of the lesser known kinds of fish in central Appalachia. Bill Lynch spoke with Welsh
6: about his book, Hornyheads, Mad Toms, and Darters. Let's talk about hornyheads, mad toms, and darters. Can I maybe describe what a hornyhead or a mad tom or a darter is? Yeah, so a hornyhead is a,
7: is a name for a group of minnows. And these are minnows that the males develop these little pointed horns on their head during the spawning season. They develop these horns, they grow these horns, and they use them to spar. They compete for females during the spawning season. In some ways, it's similar to a white-tailed deer with antlers in that, you know, a deer grows its antlers and then loses the antlers uh, after their breeding season. And it's the same situation with these horny head minnows they they grow these bumps on their head they use them during the breeding season and then they uh and then they're lost afterwards and then they regrow them the following year uh, and mad toms what are they like and mad toms are uh it's a it's a name for a group of catfish and most people when you hear the word catfish you think of big fish like uh channel catfish blue catfish flathead catfish but Mad toms are a group of catfishes that do not get very large. Um, their maximum size, depending on the species, may range from three to six inches in length. Most people don't see them because it's not a fish that you would often catch on hook and line. But we have quite a few different species of mad toms in the Appalachians, and um, they're very interesting little fish and uh, certainly worth telling a story about. One thing I wanted to do with the book was to you know, tell stories about these small fish so people can maybe understand them better and get to know them a little bit better.
6: You're an ichthyologist, is that correct? Is that, That's I, correct. When, where, how did you first start taking interest in fish?
7: Uh, I think it was when I was uh, a young kid, you know, I really enjoyed fishing. And so I spent a lot of time uh, in creeks and, you know, not necessarily fishing all the time, but flipping rocks and looking for crayfish and, and aquatic salamanders and various critters. And I think uh, that uh, focus uh, at an early age kind of uh, sparked my interest and, and I was able
6: to keep it going into a career. Kicking over rocks and fishing is one thing, but academic study of this, what kind of path is that? Well, it's a long,
7: tedious path, I guess you would say, but you know, it requires a lot of uh, graduate work. I got a, a BS degree, you know, at West Virginia University. And then I went on to get a master's degree at Frostburg State in fisheries management. And then uh, I came back to West Virginia University for a, for a PhD where I was focused on on fisheries work.
6: How diverse are, I guess, is the fish population in central Appalachia?
7: You know, we have a a lot of different kinds of fish. And for example, in West Virginia alone, which is certainly the heart of Appalachia, Central Appalachia, we have a list of species. It's uh, 195. So there's a lot of different kinds of of fishes that we have. and, And, you know, people are real familiar with the common ones, especially ones that you catch on rod and reel, but the smaller ones, uh, a lot of people don't know about them very much. And so I think that's one of the uh, opportunities for a book like this is to provide information about those fish to to let people learn a little bit more about them.
6: Talk about the book and putting it together. It's a
7: collection of stories on on central Appalachian fishes. And, and there are stories on some familiar fish, um, you know, like the native brook trout, the smallmouth bass, the bluegill sunfish. But then there's also several stories on uh, fishes that are that people know less about, such as in the title, the horny heads, mad toms, and darters. And also, um, there's some fishes that are unusual that are discussed, like, uh, for example, uh, uh, the lampreys, which are a group of fishes that are pretty small, but they have kind of an eel-like body. Then you've got a fish called the trout perch that I talk about, which is a really fascinating little fish of central Appalachia.
6: How did you, I guess, narrow it down into which fish you wanted, to, I guess, to deal with?
7: Yeah, that was a challenge because I find all the fishes that we have to be fascinating and interesting and worthy of a story. But um, I tried to just focus on some of the fishes that I thought would make the most interesting stories because what I wanted to do was to write stories that would be both educational but also interesting for a wide audience. And so I, I tried to select fishes that had an interesting story to be told. Often that was related to a certain type of behavior. It may be to a certain type of feeding strategy, a certain type of spawning strategy. It was typically some aspect of that fish that I thought was interesting that I emphasized in the story.
6: What do you hope an average reader takes away from your book?
7: What I would hope is that people would realize that uh, central Appalachians have a diversity of fishes, that there's a lot to be learned, you know, often when you know more about something, you care about it more. And I, and my hope in the end is that the book will increase the conservation of fishes in the central Appalachians by making people more aware of the
6: diversity that we have. Uh, the book is called "Hornyheads, Mad Toms and Darters. Stuart Welsh, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was Professor Stuart
0: Welsh speaking with Bill Lynch. Horny Heads, Mad Toms, and Darters from Ohio University Press is available in bookstores. Friendships that endure between people with very different values and beliefs can be a remarkable gift. In the next episode of Us and Them, host Trey Kay remembers his dear, albeit unlikely, friend Alice Moore, who recently passed away. Kay talks about how their friendship taught him about relationships, politics, and people.
2: Alice played a key role in a violent, tumultuous conflict over textbooks in my county in West Virginia. Alice wanted a new series of textbooks removed from the school system because they offended her religious and political worldview. The young me would be amazed to find that the grown me, decades later, was making a documentary that featured Alice Moore. That's how I learned Alice was not quite what I thought. Even today, I sometimes am surprised that Alice has been such a great friend and that she's taught me so much about relationships and politics and people. Maybe you know where this story is going, but I don't want to talk about Alice's death, not yet. First, I want to talk about some of our conversations, like when I first showed up at her house with my family photo album. You were just saying, what's the first thing you remember when I came here to visit you? It was back in 2009.
8: Was it 2009? Well, you drove up and uh, you went to my front door. Yeah. Which nobody ever did, though, because, you know, I'm just folks around here, that would uh, come to that side door. But you came to the front door, and your hair was longer. I, it was longer then. And I know the next time you came, you'd cut your hair, and I was kind of disappointed because I thought I you liked your hair the way it was. But, and I you it otherwise anyway. But uh, you came to the front door, and you brought the album with you, you know, with uh, Templeton's picture and, and uh, other family members. And I just, you know, I thought, how nice that you introduced me to your family. And, uh, and that impressed me.
2: That really it did. Here's the deal, Alice. The thing that has eventually happened is that you and I have become good friends and we have a different way of looking at the world. And yet we're good friends but at first i wasn't sure if we could be friends and i thought i thought i get emotional just saying that i just wanted to show you that i had a family yeah i, I was telling your son timothy the other day and i said i said timothy did you ever watch um, did you ever watch to kill a mockingbird you remember how the kids used to go and touch Boo Radley's door and run away? Yes. I said, I used to call your mom and make prank phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> you used to do what? I used to call your house just to like, could I call Alice and and talk to you on the phone? And 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 I remember once, I think I've told you this before, but I remember calling you and I remember like kind of shaking like, I'm gonna call Alice more, because your number was in the phone book. You know, I could <laughs>
0: That excerpt is from the latest Us and Them podcast, bidding farewell to my unlikely friend, Alice Moore. You can download the entire episode from Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, NPR One, or Spotify. You can also listen online at wvpublic.org. Appalachia has been a destination for rock climbers for decades. But now, more rock climbers are choosing Appalachia as a destination because of its accessibility and inclusiveness. Adaptive sports reporter Emily Chen-Newton has this story.
4: It's mid-October in Kentucky's Red River Gorge, and the trees are just beginning to take on their autumn colors as rock climbers from around the world flock to the region. The crunching of dried leaves and clanking of metal safety gear creates a type of rock climber's soundtrack. But on this particular weekend, you might also hear ATVs grinding up the trails, bringing wheelchair users to the area this is the fourth annual adaptive climbers festival which brings together climbers with disabilities from across north america sydney kessler is one of those climbers
3: i've been climbing outdoors for now two days
4: sitting in the shade of the cliff sydney explains she started climbing indoors about a year ago there she learned some tricks like wearing knee pads to avoid bruises because she doesn't have much feeling or use in her legs from a spinal cord injury
3: for me my climbing is it's basically 20 pull-ups in a row and figure out where I can grab my fingers into a hole or use a palm-down method and try to push with one hand and pull with the other.
4: And Every climber at this festival finds their own adaptations and accommodations to their different disabilities, visual, neurological, or limb differences. And the camping and transportation accommodations are just as varied as the climbing styles. The festival planning crew considers all of this when choosing the location.
9: For the Adaptive Climbers Festival, we have such a very specific list of needs.
4: This is Maureen Beck, who goes by Mo. Mo is an internationally decorated climber born without her lower left arm and one of the festival organizers. The Red River Gorge is known simply as the Red to climbers. And while it's renowned as some of the best climbing in the world for its overhanging sandstone cliffs or crags, she says that's not why the festival landed here.
9: As you can imagine there's a world class climbing, you know, all over the country that would make that have excellent world class festivals, but you can't get a wheelchair to the base of the crag or you don't have enough cabins for people to sleep in because they can't sleep in tents because of their medical conditions. And so for us, the red fit this very narrow need of accessible crags, accessible lodging and camping and then a community that can support us because we've had this festival in two other locations and the support we have gotten from the local climbers, local business owners here, is unparalleled to any place we've had this.
4: One of those local businesses is the Lagolinda's Hideaway Campground, where the festival lodging is based.
9: The owners here at Lagolinda's are going above and beyond to retrofit their bathrooms to meet ADA compliance. They're adding ramps to all of their cabins and buildings. They off-the-cuff booked a band for Saturday night because they want everybody to have a good time.
4: <laughs> Larry and Elaine Fredrickson run Logalinda's Hideaway. They've added grab bars to the shared bathrooms and ensured the showers are large enough for wheelchairs and other mobility aids. The couple sat down with me before the event kicked off, and Elaine said why they do it is simple. Once you sit up and look at the sky at night and you see those stars, it's just beautiful and peaceful. Nobody should be denied that. Nobody. Another major part of the community system for the festival is the Meir Valley Nature Preserve and Climbing Area, where the adaptive athletes climb and teach their clinics. Like at the campground, ramps and railings were added for the event. Zane Paff is a local search and rescue volunteer and one of the valley's caretakers. He says Meir Valley and two search and rescue crews from surrounding counties support the festival with transportation in ATV buggies.
0: The Lee County will bring in um, their buggy and the Wolf County will bring in their buggy, which these are just razors. We call them our rescue buggies. And then it's just a day of playing taxi and having fun.
4: He says riding in an ATV was new for most of the climbers last year.
0: I mean, they were joking around, having a blast and psyching me up and just none of them been in an ATV. So I'm like, well, hold on. (laughs) Had a little bit of fun with it, but made sure we were being safe, too. And Mir Valley doesn't allow any electric or motorized vehicles except for this event, actually. And we're only using it for, like, anybody in a wheelchair, if they're missing a limb, can't get themselves to Bruise Brothers. We'll we'll drop them right off at the climb that they want to go up. That was Zane Poff speaking with Emily Chen Newton. You can hear the rest of that story and more on Inside Appalachia Sunday mornings at 7 and Sunday evenings at 6 on West Virginia Public Broadcasting. That's it for West Virginia Week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back here next week. As always, you can see these stories and more at wvpublic.org. I'm your host, Eric Douglas.